0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. Today's episode is a conversation with Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink in our traditional post-major chat, which we have been doing for uh, multiple years now. And it's a pleasure to bring you the 2022 Roland Garros edition, where we really focus in on Nadal's title run and and work backwards, mostly from the quarterfinal with, uh, with Djokovic getting to the Zverev semi and the Rude final. And uh, just kind of zooming in on what this means, a couple of other topics such as draws, and if perhaps we should rethink how draws are done in tennis, good stuff, think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Steve is the author of two great books, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, which I have over my left shoulder right now, and uh, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited, so definitely check those out uh, if you want to read some great tennis books. Without further ado, here's Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Steve Flink for our traditional post-major chat, uh, which has been a multiple-year uh, routine that Steve and I always really enjoy. I know you guys, uh, the viewers, always enjoy. And uh, this year, we're getting into Roland Garros 2022. Steve, thanks, uh, thanks again for being on. It's always uh, always a pleasure.
1: Gil, great to be back. Looking forward to to talking about that French. Which uh, there's a lot there's a lot to talk about, and and uh, I look forward. Why, why don't you get us get us started?
0: All right. So <laughs> let's start in the quarterfinal. I know that's that's different. You know, it's not it's not what we want. Uh, if if we're being completely honest, uh, you sent me an, an email when when we were talking before the tournament, and uh, y- you saw how lopsided the draw was. And it really did play out that way. So, you know, you got to look at, and with all credit to Zverev and how that semifinal was going, you got to look at the quarterfinal as a pivotal moment for Nadal as, as he comes through that match beats Novak for the eighth time in Paris and uh, ends up uh, winning his 22nd major and his 14th title at the French open. What do you feel like was the biggest difference between the 2021 Nadal Djokovic match and the 2022 edition?
1: You know, funny thing is I see it largely Gil. I don't know how I'll be very interested to get your thoughts as that was almost a reversal of psyches this time that I watched Djokovic last year. And in the critical stages of that match, after he'd come back from losing the first to win the second and it went to the to the critical third set tiebreak, and it was one of the great sets they've ever played. That he was having, he was really enjoying himself. There were times he was smiling, and there was a positive energy to him. Rafa was fretting a bit, although he was still typically Rafa obstinate and hard, hardened competitor, tough as can be, but a little bit down on himself. Djokovic greatly enjoying himself, relishing the battle. This time, I thought the reversal was that Djokovic seemed kind of negative, irked by the crowd. He's used to crowds being against him, particularly when he plays Federer and Nadal. So it surprised me a bit that he wasn't sort of better prepared to accept that this time and say, you know what, that's a given, I'll I'll deal with it. Uh, He seemed uh, definitely more put off than usual, in my mind, by that. Then when it came, so that's the psychological analysis now for the tennis analysis I felt like it was a strange match in the sense that Djokovic I felt played uh, the first and third sets very subpar sets for him and Rafa was terrific and Rafa was utilizing that forehand down the line about as effectively as he ever has against Novak and all all credit to him he was the aggressor often in those first and third sets and he deserved them but there was an odd sort of um, I don't know, reticence to, uh, in, in Djokovic. He got a, he, you would have thought, I, I was surprised, for instance, that having lost the first set to Nadal in the 2020 final when Rafa routed him, when Djokovic seemed a bit weary from a five-set semi with Tsitsipas, and then again losing the first set last year. In both years, he went down five-love. Last year, he worked his way back a little and made it a 6-3 set. But I thought this time he surely would come out of the blocks firing hard and making sure to at least stay with Rafa in the third set in the first excuse me in the first set and sure enough long first game he had a couple of chances to hold didn't take them and Rafa breaks him and he was off and running and uh, Novak did have one chance to break back for two all and he you know it looked like he might break him in that fourth game it didn't happen at 1540 and he uh and then it just sort of unraveled from there Rafa when Rafa was was razor sharp and and purposeful and and moved his server and he did all the right things but I thought Djokovic the second half of the first set didn't play well and it carried over into the second set Gil with going down two breaks so here's Rafa's won nine out of 11 games and he is roaring at this stage and I thought Djokovic did a terrific job to win that second set to Nadal's credit although Djokovic took six of those last seven games Gil to win the set Rafa didn't make it easy. There were two games combined in the middle of the set that took almost half an hour. Mm -hmm. So that, that told you how hard he was still battling, which surprisingly, you didn't get that same sense when Djokovic was getting behind in the other sets. He made the great comeback in the second, but in the first and third, as I said, I didn't think he played well at all. And what surprised me was the number of times, Gil, that Rafa was able to get Novak on his heels when Novak was serving. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. Part of it was Nadal's returns were were exceptionally deep and he then was able to often take control of points. But this was happening even uh, uh, some of the time uh, when Djokovic was getting first serves in. So I thought he should have been more of the aggressor on on his own serve, unable to do so. And uh, I also was surprised, Gil, that Novak having come back to win the second, which was such an obvious a shot in the arm to him, such a boost to come out of this danger of being down two sets to being one set. All it's like a brand new match that he started off the third set. So uh, passively really surprised me. And Rafa sensed it. Rafa sensed it in Novak. And then of course, the last piece in the puzzle Gill was the fourth set because Djokovic got the early break. There was a disputed call from Rafa on the sideline that he, he didn't win the argument with the umpire. The replay showed conclusively that his, Angled back short backhand cross court was indeed wide. And Novak had the early break, maintained it, served quite well in the fourth. Some of his best serving was in the fourth. And he kept holding all the way up, got the 5-2 lead and served for that set at 5-3 and had the two set points. And that's that to me was a little bit symbolic of the match that Rafa not willing to give anything away there, not going to surrender. And Novak tight because on the first set point he hit a Backhand cross court, he was only going for an angle. He wasn't really even trying to hit it hard for a winner. He just wanted to open up the court a bit, and he netted it. And then on the Mm -hmm. second one, Nadal's return was really short. Then Novak made a pretty good second shot. Another short ball from Rafa. Novak comes in on the back end down the line. Nowhere near the sideline. Nowhere near enough depth. Rafa could have gone anywhere he wanted to go, and and he wisely went behind him down the line for a winner and eventually got the break back and eventually won in the tiebreak, which was another interesting sequence because Nadal Gill in the tiebreak, in my view, he was very sure of himself. And he played those first two, three points brilliantly. And then Novak kind of gave away a few points. The next thing you know, he's down 6-1. And Djokovic in typical fashion got kind of loosened up as he will often do when he's way down or down match points. He saved three, but it was too late. And Rafa closes it out seven points to four. So I thought it was a... Thoroughly deserved victory by Nadal, another masterful clay court performance. I thought we should have at least had five sets. And who's to say that Djokovic could have maintained the ascendancy because he didn't do it after the second set. So I'm not certain that he would have won the fifth either. Just think we might have seen the best tennis of the match simultaneously. What about you? I had a feeling if we could have gotten the fifth, that then maybe both players would have really taken it up a notch and we could have had. A spectacular battle, but it was not to be because Djokovic did not close it out when he had the chance.
0: Well, Steve, that's a lot of a lot of excellent points in that in that great summation. As far as the fifth set goes, my feeling in the fourth was that Novak was having an exceptional performance on first serve and that there was no way he could have sustained that. So even throughout the fourth set, I, I, I wasn't shocked. When Nadal broke Novak's serve at five-three, because I felt like the way Djokovic was playing in the second set, hanging in there with Nadal in the rallies, I thought that was long gone. And even in the fourth set that he, you know, was was ahead in, he still wasn't winning from neutral. So uh, I, at that time, favored Rafa. I thought that he was just hitting through the court a lot better. Uh, With with more high margin aggression. And I, I saw a lot of things that reminded me of 2020 in the slower fall conditions, this time in the nighttime conditions where Nadal's power is, uh, I think, a big advantage for him when the conditions get heavier, despite what a lot of people said leading, you know, coming into the match about about the conditions favoring uh, Novak.
1: Yes, uh, and a lot of people, you're right, most notably Nadal himself. It it emanated from his feeling that he wanted the day match, and I totally agree with you, and so does Ivan Isovich. Ivan Isovich, Goran Isovich Novak's coach, said made some interesting remarks about, first of all, and, and I agree with him on that too, he felt like there were many things to consider there. Like the nighttime conditions don't favor Novak on his serve. You talk about a lot of first serves. It's true, but he wasn't getting this as many free points as he would. If they played that match at three thirty in the afternoon, he would benefit from warmer conditions on his serve. And in some other respects too. Uh, I think you're right. Oddly. The, although the difference this time, Gil, is that that was a kind of a, that was a route in 2020. And Novak was way out of sorts yeah. there. No, played to a much higher standard this time but some of the same problems and obstacles were there once more I agree with you on that I'm not sure what how to feel about what would have happened in the fifth I I just don't think it would have been uh, many people would have thought that Djokovic having the momentum would would have would have played a great fifth and I think he might have but I I agree that Rafa was more self-assured and confident in this match the question to me is why I, I Djokovic in 2020 I had the feeling that maybe the Sitsipas five set semi had him had taken away some of his energy that he really hadn't recovered as well as he needed to physically and that therefore he was a little flat and that that, that was the primary reason we saw a less than stellar performance from him. Just to expand on that point slightly, Gill in 2020 final yeah I think we had a Djokovic who was well below par and a, a top of the line Rafa who was blazing through that tournament in the fall. But that's the, the important thing about that tournament and that match is that it shows that for all of Rafa's misgivings about not playing in the day, and he feels he gets much greater purchase out of his forehand in the day because it bounds much higher and he's a lot happier in, in the heat, that he can play great under any clay court conditions. And 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 that 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 was a that was an interesting debate because in in, in the end you could Really say that it didn't, the evening conditions didn't favor either player, and it certainly didn't help Novak on his serve. And as you pointed out so accurately, Rafa was hitting through the court. He was penetrating more, as a rule, than, than Novak was. Partly Novak's own fault, I think. He needed to be more the aggressor, get on top of the points. But Rafa, let's face it, Gil, over the, over the last five, six years, you know, across his 30s, even before that, he doesn't play the same way that Ra- the Rafa who won his first French in 05 or even 06 or 07. He, mm-hmm. to me, is much more aggressive and capable of flattening that forehand out some. Sure, there's still plenty of RPMs, but he hits it harder and more aggressively. It's a different purpose to it. And he can hit through the court more and not rely as much on the topspin. And that's what I think he feels he has to do against Djokovic. You've probably heard him say afterwards, Gil, that He felt he had to bring his A game, that he had no choice. If he didn't bring his A game, he was going home. So I thought he played miles better, granted, totally different type of opponent and not the same kind of big server than he had against Felix algar I mean, I think it was a decidedly better performance than the five setter he had in the previous round. And that was stepping up to the occasion. Conversely, Djokovic, who had been, I thought, almost letter perfect in beating Diego Schwartzman, one three and three in the round of 16. You know, that match and really most of what he did in Rome and what he played the whole tournament at Roland Garros, he was, I thought he was ready to play at a much higher level than he did against Rafa. That's what's so interesting about these big matches is you don't know necessarily who's going to step up. But I did think Rafa played the match, to get back to your point, He played it more on his terms and Novak never fully found a way to combat it. It might have, if he could have snuck through that 5-3 game and converted one of those set points, that would have been a lift. And then maybe in the fifth, he would have taken it up a notch, maybe. But Rafa was not going away either. So listen, in the end, a great victory for Nadal. And in the end, Gil, to get back to your original point, that to me was the final. Because I think both players knew when they walked out there, that already Zarev had beaten the kid, the kid being Carlos Alcaraz, and neither one of them really wanted to play the kid. They weren't afraid of him, but they were more fearful. Not to say that Zarev was not in sparkling form in this tournament, because uh, in that match with Carlos especially, and then again in stages against Rafa, but in the end, you don't fear him on the big points as much as you do Carlos Alcaraz, who is a He's just so unintimidated and so uh, uh, such a great, well, he'd shown it. He'd shown it from Miami and then winning the two clay court tournaments as well, that he's how rapidly he's improving and how undaunted he is by competing against the best. He would have relished playing Novak or Rafa. So my feeling was they knew the result. They knew that Carlos Alcaraz was gone. They both thought that in the end, in best of five, they were going to beat Serev. And they felt they, their chances were excellent against anybody on the opposite half of the draw. That's why I say the final, in many ways, was that quarterfinal, which is why I'm glad you started with it.
0: Yeah, we'll get to the the draw in a moment. I have a I have a question to ask you about that. Uh, the the one The other thing I want to respond um, on in terms of the quarterfinal is that the energy because I felt that Nadal looked fresher in the fourth set. As I mentioned, Djokovic was, was winning, uh, but, but it was short points. And Nadal tend, would tend to win the longer exchanges. And I, I really felt like Rafa, especially down the stretch of the fourth set, had more legs. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about why. And this is something I, I didn't even say after the match. So I want to I say it now um, and see, see what your thoughts are. I felt that the start by Nadal was the key to that. Uh, because he went up three love in the second set after winning the first Novak knew he couldn't go down two sets to love and the energy expenditure to climb back in that second set. You also mentioned the two games that took about 30 minutes combined was, you know, it was, it was such an effort to get back in that set that it probably emptied too much of the gas tank. Um, for, for Djokovic and that's the only way I could explain uh, a player who obviously has really uh, strong, strong endurance and, and last year in the fourth set it was completely reversed where Nadal's legs were gone and Novak looked fresh uh, I felt it was the flow of the match where Nadal built such a great lead that it ended up getting to Djokovic's energy by the end
1: Great analysis. I don't disagree with the word you said. I'd only want to add this, you know, is that during that second set, when he did wage the comeback, Novak was letting his shots fly. He was really ripping the ball off both sides. He had Rapa on his heels. That was the only prolonged, I think even more so than the fourth set, even more than the fourth, as he said to himself, I'm not going to beat him playing the way I played. I've got to hit out freely. I've got to hit winners. I've got to open up the court. And I really essentially have to blast Rafa off the court. And that was the only time that you saw some close-ups of Rafa on the screen, Gil. You probably noticed it too. Only time he looked remotely discouraged. There were looks on his face like, how can I stop this? What What am I supposed to do about this? He was amazed by some of Novak's shot making. But you're right. It took a lot of energy. And it gets back to my earlier point to you that it also meant Novak had to fight his way through some really long deuce games there in the middle of the set that did consume that uh, essentially half hour span so that that it was not a typical six four set It, it was a lot harder work than that and so yes he was a little bit depleted afterwards I just thought it would be such a psychological lift that we might see that we would have seen him start the third set better than he did and with the same level of aggression he backed off again he started playing the way he did in the first set. And then Rafa just ramped it up the way he had in the first set and had it back on his playing to the tempo that he wanted. So just fascinating the way it swung there. But I, I, I think your comments are spot on.
0: So in a lot of other sports like the NCAA tournament or the NHL playoffs, uh, the, the one seed plays the eight seed in, in hockey, for example, the four seed plays the five seed. Yeah. In in March Madness, it's you know, the one seed plays the 16 seed and so on. This was a, this was a draw where people naturally started to think aloud and wonder if that would be a better system so that the so that it's not just random as you know five through eight could be in any quarter with one through four. And instead it 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 is set. So, so do you think it should be like that or, or do you think the way it is, is, is okay?
1: No, I'm going to, I'm going to sound like I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but let me explain. I do believe 16 seeds would be better than 32. That's a whole separate argument. We could discuss that there shouldn't, there shouldn't be one quarter of the players seated in the field. That's a separate argument. As far as your point regarding five through eight, why should the number one seed be saddled with number five and it it doesn't make any sense to me that you know you're not actually being rewarded for being the number one seed and and why should the player rafa in this case as the number five seed above the six seven and eight seeds get the worst deal from his end to have to play the top seed no i think your way is much better it should be one versus eight two versus seven three versus six four versus five that along the i would much prefer that because then i think you the rewards are there for where you are in the seedings. But having said that, I would also add, Gil, that I think it was a terrible injustice. You had the player who at that point was a 13-time champion who happened to be have some struggles on the clay court circuit only played two clay court tournaments. He'd had the injured rib in Indian Wells. We know all the reasons. Didn't get his usual preparation. Didn't get his usual points. So he didn't stay in the top four. I think that has to be taken into consideration when you seed And I felt like there's no way you can't have him seeded among the top four. And then this could have been avoided so that at least Djokovic and Nadal would not meet prior to the semifinals. A semifinal, OK, quarterfinal too soon. So I, I felt that that was a real injustice and that Djokovic paid a price as well as Nadal, obviously, because he was the top seed and had the misfortune. But they, they shouldn't have had to collide in the quarterfinals, in my view, what, what are your thoughts on that?
0: For a little while. Uh, and I've been asked about that actually for a number of years, um, in when, you know, about the seedings and for a while, I was concerned that if they did it that way, we would see the same quarterfinal matchups over and over again. Then I, I ran the, kind of simulation. And I looked across multiple majors and I actually went to see if the matchups would be repetitive. And the result was that they they really would not be that there was occasionally Roland Garros to Wimbledon, you would get repeat, uh, but but that it really wasn't too common. So uh more and more I'm now coming around to the the I, I don't even know that we have a name for it. The I guess, symmetrical seeding of the top yeah. eight, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm there, you know, I, I would be, I would be happy with the change.
1: Yeah. I just thought that was a shame because we knew we were going to lose one of them. Djokovic had been coming into very good form uh, after a terrible clay court uh, start to the clay court season in Monte Carlo, but he'd gotten better and better with the final in Serbia. And then the Lost to Carlos Alcaraz in, a, in really one of the best clay court matches of the season in a final set tie break in Madrid, and then he wins Rome. So he's really coming around. Rafa is Rafa and always rises to the occasion at Roland Garros. So somehow the notion that they would meet in the quarters, it, 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 it left me really unsettled. And it was bad luck because obviously the, it could have come out very differently, but I don't even think there should be a chance that it should happen. And unfortunately, it did, and and we had the most eagerly awaited match in the tournament prior to the semifinals. So it made, it made the rest of the way something of a letdown. Although Zarev gave Rafa a surprisingly big fight under the roof, with Rafa sweating profusely, yeah, and uh, Rafa really needed to bail himself out, as you know, from six two down in that tiebreak, and the first set was critical, and then. After, after that string of service breaks, when they had eight out of nine games of service breaks, you had Zarev serving for the second set at 5-3 and throws in three double faults, which was really unfortunate. And, and then, of course, it all ends with that awful injury of, uh, for Zarev that forced him to retire, which was a shame. And that was another pivotal moment, uh, Gil, don't you think? Because they've been out there for over three hours. So if Zarev happened to win this, I don't think he was going to win, by the way. I thought he really had to win the first set, in my view. And that even if he'd come back to take the second in a tie break, if they'd been able to play it, I think Rafa over, over would have eventually won. We'll never know. But it, he certainly would have had to have been out there, Rafa, at least probably another hour. And it'd been, if Zerub had taken the second set tie break, he could have been out there a couple more hours. And that could have taken a lot out of him, you know, because, he was, because of the heavy sweating and the perspiration. He would have been really depleted. Uh, we, we'll never know. But that was clearly a big break to get off the court in less than two sets and just over three hours uh, when he was having a, a, a mighty struggle with an inform form uh, Zverev.
0: Yeah, that was a case where I thought the conditions really hurt Rafa.
1: Right,
0: um, right. I mean, right. Zverev didn't seem too bothered by the humidity.
1: No, he didn't.
0: And, and, and Nadal not only was the the sweating um an an issue for him, which I've seen, I've seen before. It's usually not a good sign. The last time I really saw it was against Shapovalov in Australia, where, where Rafa was far from his best. You could see, even though he usually sweats a lot, not that much. Um, And his ball, uh, unlike in the Novak match where his forehand was extremely damaging in, in this match, he, he wasn't playing close to the lines and, was uh, rarely it was really Zverev on the offensive more often than not. Now Zverev made plenty of mistakes. Rafa did not make a lot of mistakes, uh, but there were points where it felt like Nadal was actually Zverev's passenger um, in the match. Now, with that being said, um, I you know Nadal was in a perfectly okay position to win the match. Um, obviously, having won the first set with his best tennis of the match when he needed it, Uh, his forehand came alive at the end of the tie break. He hits the incredible passing shots, two of them, one to save set point, one upset point. Uh, So, so he's clutch and and Zverev isn't, and that decides the set Um, and including the second set. When, when you mentioned Zverev's poor service game uh, serving it out, but if Zverev won the second set, I'm afraid because of those excruciating conditions where, the court speed, Steve, was as slow as I've ever seen. I've just, I thought the way the clay must have been so damp, and yeah, right, the ball right. was so heavy. I mean, yeah. it, the ball just was not moving.
1: Yeah, um, and that, and that's where you're right. And but that's where Zareb is remarkable because he's so strong. And right, his backhand is just plain sound. His backhand is terrific. And when he's controlling the forehand, which he did most of the time that day, he re- he really was able to be make the more penetrating shots and he did have Rafa really backing up I I, no doubt he handled the conditions much better and he also looked surprisingly fit he looked like he could have gone a lot longer himself uh uh, Sasha so it it would have been interesting but I I I guess what I'm saying Gil is I don't want to be come across as mean-spirited because I have great regard for Zarev winning two year end championships and all the masters 1000s that he's taken and just the gifts of his game, but I do not trust him in the crunch at these majors. And he, he almost let it get away against Alcaraz. He was destroying Carlos for two sets. And then he loses the he serve at the end of the third. Okay, fair enough. Then he serves to the match in the fourth and tightens up again. Yep. And finally covered from set point down to win the tie. But that match had gone five, I don't think he would have won. I think that's Great. where he worries me is that, the psychological competitor is fragile, not the physical competitor, but the psychological one. And therefore, I wouldn't have trusted him even with even with you making those good that good case for why he was doing so well. I still would have liked. That's why I think he had to have that first set. And it was a big blow. And I give him credit for not folding in the second. But I yeah. wouldn't I still believe in the end Rafa would have won. It's just a shame that when you get a semifinal of that importance that we couldn't finish it off. On the other hand, it was probably the most poignant match of the tournament guild to see him come back out on the court, on the crutches, shake the umpire's hand, hug Rafa, who's right behind him. They both were so uh, classy in the way they handled that situation. And it it was particularly impressive from Zara, who's heartbroken at that point.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, it was actually, even though the Djokovic Nadal match was the most uh, important stage of the event, the most memorable was uh, the those very inc- unconventional three hours, Steve, from the yeah. conditions yeah. to the way the, the match was being played. I think, you know, both players, even if Zverev was handling the conditions, it still, it still was, you know, it still affected, I think, the tennis uh, overall negatively for both players because of how slow it was, um, which we saw with Zverev not being able to hold his serve. The only, you know, but... Zooming out, you know, back to okay, the results is the result. Zverev gets injured. I agree with you that physically, it was uh, it was a key that that match ended because the winner of that match, if Zverev, especially if Zverev won the second set, the winner of that match will have prob would have probably have gone through as physical a match as they have ever played in their careers. And it sounds like hyperbole, but it's because of the conditions that just made it so so uh rigorous on on the players
1: that's not hyperbolic at all it's accurate
0: yeah I mean three hours two sets it it was just uh not a a normal circumstance
1: but I just wanted I just wanted to add one thing to your analysis you're so right that Rafa's forehand came true when it needed to it was brilliant in the tie break in turn Zarev he wasn't quite sure, I mean, okay, Rafa aces him on the first set point at 6-2, nothing you can do about that, he went wide to his forehand, surprised him, but then Sasha tried that serve and volley, you know, I mean, uh, Rafa made a great forehand pass, Ra- Sasha tries to serve in volley and didn't miss the backhand volley, he, uh, you know, he was just a little uncertain, and I felt like the, that backhand volley that he missed long, he shouldn't have missed it, and Those are, those are openings you can't let get away from you, but obviously Rafa made it tough on him and also came up with those spectacular winners and, uh, all power to him. He said it was something of a miracle, which was modest of Nadal, but it certainly was a spectacular comeback.
0: Yeah, you're right. You got to make those volleys and, uh, The uh, I I also go both ways on the approach shots, right? I mean, Nadal has great anticipation and hits perfect approach shots, but at a certain point, when you get three approach shots, you got to win one of the points, uh, right? I mean, I just in terms of, I mean, you know, again, Nadal's anticipation is great, but he was
1: you're saying Sasha's got to win one of those if he comes in like that,
0: yeah? You know, it's easy to to give all the credit to Nadal for spectacular passing shots, but. But but you also, when you get three short balls, yeah. uh, it's at, at this level. And I know the conditions made it hard to finish. Uh, I think the fact that Nadal read you three times, knew where you were going, yeah. it, it can't be a coincidence.
1: No, exactly. And also, but also Nadal, he's very adept at making you play awkward shots. I give him credit for that. But I'm, on one of those critical points there, he he sort of just guided his backhand down the line to make Zarev move. And then Sasha ends up missing the high backhand volley cross court. You know that he's a big yeah. guy. He anticipate a little better. Rafa didn't try to do that much with the pass. He just tried to make him play a difficult volley and Sasha sh- should have been up to the task. Now that was a crushing blow, but yeah, I give maybe I go 60, 40, the credit to 60% credit to Nadal and 40% criticism for to Zarev for losing that breaker.
0: Sure. Uh, from up six two, let's go to the final. Uh, were you disappointed in Rude's performance? I I couldn't really bring myself to be all that disappointed because uh, I didn't think he was ready for that, and it wasn't his fault that the the draw opened up for him. He's been incredibly consistent at at beating players ranked lower than him. You know, the final was uncompetitive and certainly anticlimactic. But but I personally couldn't bring myself to be to be too critical of Casper.
1: No, I would be no, I just would be mildly critical in the sense that he he did the best he could and he lost the first at six three broke Rafa once not a bad effort hung in there played pretty well. When he had an opening for a forehand down the line, he took it. Then he did have that three one lead in the second set, and understandably, I mean, and Rafa in typical Rafa ferocious fashion gets the break right back so he didn't let it get out of hand but i wouldn't have expected 11 games in a row i i think rude could have done a little better than that frankly i think at a certain point you can't let your respect and admiration for rafa and all your practice sessions at the nadal academy and the fact that rafa is such a revered sportsman and such a great guy get in your in your way to that extent i would have I would have hoped, I guess coming in, I thought we were looking more like 3-3-4, three, three, and four, not 3-3-in-love. Three, three so the disappointment sure. was the third set semi-surrender. I'm not saying he did not tank by any means, but his attitude was he was very uh, resigned to the defeat by then. And I thought he, we, we should have seen a little better out of him in the third. And Rafa sensed it. He pounced. What can you do? There's another guy named Federer who had something similar happen to him in the 2008 final when he lost to Rafa one, three in love. It was even worse than this, but it was the same deal. The love set came at the end and Rafa is capable of that, but that's my only criticism. I, I thought Rude did very well for all the reasons you cited. It's his first final. They did a great job to get to the final, played a nice match against Chilich, had a nice win over Holger Rune. There were a lot of nice moments for him in this tournament. I, and I think Rafa's right. The future is bright for him, but I hope he'll learn from that and become an even grittier competitor. And I, I suspect he will.
0: With the longevity that Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer have, uh, have all achieved, you have examples, and I think this, you know, this one is more extreme than any of the other examples where Rafa's dominance in Paris dates back to 2005, Rude yeah. was seven years old.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: you gotta think that psychologically it plays a role that, that Rude has spent his whole life admiring and even being a fan of, of Rafa, watching him win these finals, never loses one. And now he's the guy on the other side.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, that's, I,
0: there's nothing like that 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 we've seen, right?
1: No, it's true. It's an un, unusual circumstances, but that's part of being a great professional, and that's part yeah. of what could take him to into the top five, you know, what, what might get him say a year end top five position instead of top 10 is, is that attitude, that sense of, okay, the friendship ends. I mean, look at Rafa, he's ruthless on the court. He's a great guy. He's extremely likable. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's so humble and, uh, afterwards and the remarks he made about rude, but when he's out there, there's no nonsense there's absolutely no nonsense and he, he's a killer on the court and that's really what they need to learn from him that's what a has to learn from him okay we can we can laugh a little after the match and we can show our respect for each other there and 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 our camaraderie and and uh just in, enjoy whatever friendship we've got but while we're out there the lines are drawn and Rafa's is, is exceedingly good at that
0: yeah there um, there's a little bit of killer instinct that, that Casper is developing, uh, but, but I don't think it's there yet. And, and Nadal, no. uh, Nadal on, on Sunday in, in French open finals. I mean, it's, it's almost a sure thing that he's going to bring his best. Oh yeah. I,
1: and and particularly under those circumstances, you know, I mean, yeah, he would have brought his best uh, under any circumstances against any opponent, but he knew deep down, Gil, you know, that it was going to take something. I mean, Rude sort of gave it away before the match when he said, "I'll have." essentially he said he had to play his best match. He had to play better than he's ever played before. It's going to have to be the best match he's ever played. Well, when you're coming in thinking that that's what you need to do, as opposed to, I need to play really well. I need to be near the top of my game. That's a lot less pressure, but he he was being realistic. He knew exactly what he was up against. And I sense that Nadal had very clear memories from the practice sessions, not of the scores because he admitted Later, he didn't remember the scores of those sets the way that Rude apparently does. But he knew the patterns, he knew how he played, and he felt in the end he was going to have to have a very bad day to lose that match. And that was not disrespectful, but it really was realistic. The matchup, I just think in the end, the matchup is not not favorable for Rude, and it's extremely comfortable for Rafa. The way he peppered away with his cross court forehand, you know, and use the heavy top much more than he did say against Novak or in his other matches. And, and then opened up the court for the, the inside out forehand when he needed it. But often he broke down the backhand, and he never allowed rude to get too comfortable on his forehand wing, which is really Casper's best shot.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, he had, he had Casper backing up a lot on the backhand when he needed a point, he could approach into his backhand. There were plenty of options for Nadal. I yeah. want to uh bounce off um an opinion that that I took away from um big picture as we look at 2022, uh which which resembles 2021 for, for Djokovic, obviously having won uh the first two majors in 21. And one of those was Nadal's best slam, uh, of course, Roland Garros. And and Nadal now wins Australia, Novak's best slam, and and then kind of holds serve at uh at his best slam to win the the year's first two majors, and, and he takes a two, a two major lead in that race, 22-2020 now. It feels to me like uh, Carlos Alcaraz is going to become a factor in the coming years in a way that Tsitsipas and Medvedev and, and Zverev, as good as they are, Carlos is different. He's at another level. And I think that makes 2022, while Alcaraz is still an inexperienced teenager, very, very important. Uh, I think the U.S. Uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open uh, are even more important for Djokovic than we would have known uh, after Australia or the Australian Open that Nadal won. Even more important in hindsight than we would have known because of Carlos Alcaraz. What do you make of that read?
1: It's a very good read. Uh, And I think that in the back of their minds, both Nadal and Djokovic would agree with you. Rafa, if he's able to continue into next year, Novak inevitably will. Yeah, I mean, listen, I still don't put it past Carlos Akraz to win the U.S. Open. I don't think he's going to be a tremendous factor at Wimbledon. He'll be in it. Don't don't get me wrong. I see him quarters and maybe he gets to the semis. He's going to do well at Wimbledon, I suspect. But the Open, I still give him a, a real shot, but you're right in terms of short term and Novak trying to catch Rafa in the, in the Grand Slam title race, where he's now two behind at 22 to 20. Yeah, these become very important events for him. And he's got his six Wimbledon titles. He's won it the last three times he's played it. You know, he won it in 18 and 19, and they didn't play Wimbledon in 20, and Novak got it again last year. So it's been a really great major for him. He needs it pretty badly. No doubt about it, and that's and and you're right because Alcaraz at the rate that he's improving, where I totally agree with him. And I wrote this in one of my articles a, a while back. I mean, I just think he's going to soar. All of those guys, all of the Medvedevs and the Sitsapases and Zarev, even Zarev. Although I have great respect for Zarev's game, I think that Carlos is going to move past them quickly and and convincingly, not to the point where he he just dispatches them with ease every time he plays them but he's going to get the better of them. He is going to be very possibly be ranked number 1 in the world at the end of this year. Djokovic cannot defend his points at Wimbledon, so that means he he didn't get any points, couldn't play Australia lost 2000 points there. He'll lose 2000 at Wimbledon. Novak is going to have a heck of a time finishing the year number 1. It's very unlikely. Carlos is just going to pick up titles and even if he doesn't win a major uh he'll do well at the U.S. Open for sure he'll do well enough at Wimbledon and I think he'll get some other titles so by the end of the year he may well have set himself up for an incredible 2023 not that I'm suggesting that he'll he'll take over the game but I think that that's where we're going to see him winning at least one and probably two majors in 2023 whether or not he gets his first one this year at the U.S. Open.
0: I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the timeline. I'm, I'm not, my expectations aren't too high for Wimbledon as far as him as a contender, but the U.S. Open, we've seen how that has gone in, in recent years. It's generally been an opportunity for, for the younger players. It's been the major that the, uh, the field has had the most success at um, against Nadal and Djokovic in particular. And then, you know, the off season that Alcaraz had this year in how much stronger he got, uh, right. If, right. He can, if he can do anything close to that, again, um, in, in the training block that he'll get in December, then uh, he will ascend to, to heights that are going to be uh, a, a real factor f- in, in every tournament, I think, in, in 2023.
1: Yeah, Gil, absolutely. Just to go back for a second, let's just say that he converts the set point in the four-set tiebreak against Sasha Zarev, wins it in five plays Nadal in the semifinals. I'm not at all sure that he wouldn't have won that match. I think it would have been a great match. And had he won it, I would have liked his chances immensely against Ruud as well. So it, it wasn't, you look back on that and realize he actually could have conceivably won this tournament, despite the early round scare against Ramos Vinolas, saving the match point, just another example of his medal and his cap- capacity to compete under extreme pressure. And then he rounded into very good form in his next two matches. And finally lost a tough one to Zara but no I think you know he could under the right circumstances could have even won this one so uh, it's going to be fascinating to follow him and and if if he surprises us with a great Wimbledon then that's all power to him that would really show us something because he doesn't have much experience on the grass and you wouldn't think it's the best court for him right now even under the slower conditions that Wimbledon has been played in these last 10-15 years so I I but I, but then once Wimbledon ends and he's out on the hard courts, I expect some big things from Carlos in a Cincinnati or, or Canada, and then to make a real run, serious run at the U S open title.
0: As far as Wimbledon goes, there is uh, no concern for, for, uh, for Novak. I think at the moment, based on what we've seen from him on the surface, uh he'll, He'll be the favorite and it's the tournament that I feel like there's the most distance between him and and everybody else uh, at Wimbledon where it's almost hard to conceivably come up with a number two, uh, especially if, if Nadal can't play, Uh, do you have any thoughts on Nadal's foot, you know, other than, than what he's said, which is that it's all going to, it's going to be about, you know, the pain he's not going to do injections in his foot again for Wimbledon he refuses to go that route uh it's gonna you know it depends on the treatment and and we'll see what happens and if he can play or not uh with the with the grand slam which feels you know not like a particularly strong possibility but certainly still in play uh he heads into Wimbledon where where Djokovic is going to be the favorite
1: yeah, if Nadal, if this plan of his works and he is able to compete, and that's a big if, but if he's feeling good and the foot is not a factor, he's not having to get, he, he, as you said, he will not go through Wimbledon taking injections like he did in Paris. He's got to be ready to go without that. And Let's just say that scenario plays out. Listen, he hasn't won the tournament since 2010, Gil, when he won his second title over Thomas Burdish in the finals. And, you know, then he lost to Djokovic in the finals the next year, had a string of bad Wimbledon's for him, but then came back pretty strong in 18 and 19, lost to 10-8 in the fifth to Novak in the semis and 18. Would have won that tournament for sure if he'd beaten Novak because it was Kevin Anderson, uh, depleted Kevin Anderson in the final. Yep. Then and, and then he loses, didn't play a very good match against Roger in the semis the next year, but he had played really well coming into the semis. So he's had... A number of impressive Wimbledon is just not up to the level we saw from him in the period of 2006 to 2011. So, but I would think he would be almost loose, strangely. I don't think he'd get let himself be hindered by, oh my God, I'm going for the Grand Slam. If I can win this, I'll be where Novak was. He doesn't get, he will not get carried away with that stuff. I think he'll only be looking at it in terms of, this is a chance for me to win Wimbledon. I haven't won it since 2010. Maybe I can do it again. And he would love to sort of get himself in a position to play Novak again where the pressure would be entirely on Djokovic. But all things being equal, Nadal there or not, a healthy Nadal there or not, we're probably not going to have Zarev. I'd be surprised if he's ready to come back from his injury. Medvedev, Medvedev, another big server who could be dangerous on the grass, will not be there. So I think that that makes Novak an even more clear favorite. The question is, is is he... Normally he, he he's he's good with those with those types of conditions. He, he can handle being the favorite. Right now he's feeling a little extra pressure, I think, because it's he, it looked like he was ready to pull away. He almost wins the Grand Slam a year ago, and he loses a, to Medvedev in the finals of the U.S. Open, one match short. And we all know about what happened in Australia, and then he has this disappointment against Nadal in Paris. So he has not won a major since Wimbledon last year. So, you know, it might make him a bit anxious. On the other hand, I think he's going to be uh, extremely eager to come through there. And he is really comfortable on those courts. So he has to be the clear favorite.
0: Yeah, and certainly he was feeling a lot of stress as as a heavy favorite last year in a a similar circumstance. The only difference was uh, the pressure was coming from, you know, the momentum that he had built over the course of the season instead of the lack thereof. Uh, but but i i agree with you i think that's a good point about how he'll be feeling about how important it is uh he does he is in in good uh position to to attempt to uh to handle that uh so i i think we've covered uh we've covered everything here as far as uh as the men uh let me let me mention uh bring bring eish into the conversation before we we wrap things up 35 wins in a row and somehow it doesn't it's at no point has it felt all too surprising given how much better she is than uh than seemingly everyone else at the moment what has impressed me more than anything is the psych is the psychological side she does not appear to be bothered by the weight of pressure and expectation on her no. I
1: mean, there was one moment in the middle of the tournament. She dropped a set. You know, she looked anxious for about seven or eight minutes.
0: I then agree. One, that was it.
1: Then she turns the corner and wins the second set and never looks back. No, I, I think it's very impressive. Makes me a little sad that Barty decided to go. I would have wish we could have had a nice rivalry brewing with them right now. And I wish Osaka would get back into the mix. But you're, I think your assessment of of uh, Iga is really excellent. And, and I, I, it, it isn't surprising, but that, what a compliment that is to her, that we go out, we anticipate every match of hers and we'd be surprised if she didn't find this level right now. So I want to see if there's any sign of instability on the grass. I don't suspect there will be. I think she can handle the lower bounces. I think her game is well-equipped to handle any kind of court right now. She's built up a lot of psychological capital and she she believes she's the best in the world and clearly is. So if she doesn't win at least one of these next two, I'll be shocked. I mean, it may be asking a lot of her to sweep through Wimbledon and the Open, but surely she's going to win at least one and go deep into the other. And, uh, you know, she's what the women's game needed in many ways. As I say, I regret the lack of a rivalry and Barty being gone and and Osaka, not the same Osaka yet. But. She's a dominant number one. I've been waiting for this for a long time. I, I think that there hasn't been enough continuity and that she's going to bring that, an, an, a new level of interest to women's tennis w- with, with her domination, because there, there still will be other players in the mix, but people now are focusing very sharply on her and deservedly so.
0: I agree, Steve. And, and the rivals will come. You know That might take time. I know right now, uh-huh. right now it's, it's very unclear who can, can, can be ready to challenge her. I mean, you, you could throw out 10, 15 names and uh, you know, that's how unclear it is. Uh, But but let's give it some time.
1: Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Just a quick point. The nicest part of this story is think back to two years ago when you mentioned Rafa and the, when they played the the fall edition of the tournament after the U S open and Rafa rocked and that's when ego got her first major. And Mm -hmm. then she didn't have a very, didn't have a great 2021. But it's 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 wonderful to see her now hitting her stride and playing this kind of tennis and, and you know having Barty step aside and then moving into that number one position so comfortably embracing it and expecting it of herself and becoming a great champion and and I I I had been disappointed with what the way she played a year ago but I'm really thrilled to see her right now uh, you know playing the best tennis of her career and and we know she can. There's there there are facets of her game she can improve. She will get even a little better than this. So I think she'll be ready to deal with that competition when it comes. But it'll be fun when we have two or three of them maybe who demonstrate that they can be authentic rivals to Ega and, and give us some great semis and finals at the majors.
0: I was uh so I was just getting ready to just uh you know say say bye and promote. Promote uh, your last book, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited. So Pete won one, right? He won the first, the U.S. Open. He was very young. Then he took a second, right? He took a little while to just get back into being done. Is it a similar pattern you saw with just Ego's rise?
1: I think you could say that. That's very true. He won the 90 Open. He was 19. It was shocking to a lot of people. He was seated 12th, the youngest male champion ever. And he went through at Lendl in a five-set quarter and a four-set semi and Agassi in a straight-set final. It was a spectacular uh, breakthrough moment for him. And then the next two years were tough. And two years later, he was back in the finals of the U.S. Open and lost to Ed Bergen. That match sort of changed his life permanently. But, but yeah. yes, 93, he was ready to embrace it. That can definitely yeah. happen. You're right. There are some parallels and it happens with great players. And in Iga's case, I think, she probably will never look back now. I think she's, she's so comfortable wearing the robe of a champion, and I don't think she's going to take it off for, for quite a while.
0: Yeah, agreed. It's e- easy to forget that uh, she is still uh, just 21 years old, uh, so there's a lot of time uh, for her to be at the top of the sport. Uh, Steve, always enjoy this. This, um, this was really fun, as always, and we don't have to wait very long. Uh, to uh, to catch up again, either before Wimbledon or after. So,
1: I look forward to it, Gil. Thanks for having me on.